0: Friends, before we begin, let me mention that Tracks for the Journey is available in a book series. I've revised and expanded each podcast as an essay for you to enjoy. Search on Amazon with my name and the Tracks for the Journey title. There you'll find volumes 1, 2, or 3 available in paperback or Kindle edition. Or you can go to my website for a direct link to find these and other resources. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Tracks for the Journey, a podcast dedicated to your well being. I'm Larry Payne, your host. I'll be exploring helps for your healthy growth in progressive Christian theology, psychology, science, and history. And in this episode, let's travel down the trail together and talk about when the Bible failed America. Let's also talk about accepting the realities of life and a friend named Doubt. The first segment in our episode today is a combination of Backtracks, which deals with religious history, and Soul Prints, which covers theology. It's titled When the Bible Failed America. And to get into this subject, I want us to travel back 175 years ago. At that time, Americans were devoted to the Bible. The vast majority of citizens in the 33 states of the Union were Protestant steeped in the authority of the Bible to guide the affairs of life. Churches and religious societies touched every community, amazing foreigners with their pervasive devotion. But there was a dark and ominous problem that also touched every community and every lawmaker across the nation in those years. Slavery. Specifically, slavery and what the Bible taught. In fact, the Bible was failing America in 1860. What was the problem? The Bible was failing America because the interpreters of Scripture couldn't agree on what was taught about slavery. The common notion held that the plain language of the Bible offered perfect and universal guidance on every ethical issue. Esteemed historian Mark Knoll describes this idea as common-sense literalism, Meaning that every person should ignore past theology to think for themselves, and that the plain words of Scripture provided all the guidance needed for ethical issues. It seemed unimportant to understand the historical context of the Bible, what it meant for those who wrote it, or how all present interpretations are shaped by the current culture. Instead, each person in common-sense literalism could claim the right and the discernment to judge the meaning as it seemed plain to them. This common-sense literalism produced a ferocious debate over the Bible and slavery in the 1850s. Those who came from the culture of the slave-holding states could cite many Bible verses in which slavery was the norm for ancient Israel or the Roman Empire— Abraham owned slaves, and slaves were a part of the kingdom of David and Solomon in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul taught Christians should submit to the rule of Roman law, which fully permitted slavery. An entire book of the New Testament, Philemon, was about a slave and a master with no condemnation of the practice. To those supporting slavery, all of this meant that America should accept the slave system as approved by God. It was in the Bible very plain. As one preacher said about those who disagree with these Bible teachings, quote, The tree of abolition is evil. It springs from an utter rejection of the scriptures and leads to utter infidelity. End quote. On the other hand, the same common-sense literalism brought the anti-slavery leaders to a different conclusion. They said the Bible's greater message was freedom from oppression, justice for all people, love towards all neighbors, and the dismantling of racial distinctions. Moses had demanded that Pharaoh free the Hebrews— while Paul, in the New Testament, preached the church brought all Christians, all persons, together in equality. Wise people should recognize the difference between the mere record of slavery in the ancient world and approval of it by a just and loving God, was the argument of the abolitionists. We can see today that the problem was not the Bible, but the common sense literalism that interpreted the Bible. It wasn't the Bible that was failing America, it was the interpreters who were failing. The intractable debate over slavery exposed the fallacy of ignoring the contexts of Scripture and making sacred the culture of the ancient world, ignoring research and the studies of theology. Even deeper was the error of believing the Bible offered unvarnished ethical wisdom for all situations or cultures rather than being a treasure of wisdom to be transmitted into a changing world. These errors are being repeated today, I'm afraid, in the divergent debate over sexuality, feminism, and race. This debate over slavery in the 1850s ultimately split the United States. According to Noll, it also split the theology of the American public. In his words, The crisis signaled by the antithetical interpretations of Scripture centered on the adequacy of the Bible itself, calling into question the reputation of the Bible as an omnicompetent, infallible authority for life now and forever. The civil war over Scripture did as much damage to American theology as the shooting war did to the body politic." Today, let's be wiser as we open the pages of Scripture. As we seek answers to the modern world, let's instead of doing what was done decades ago, follow the context of Scripture, looking to the enduring theological truth and not the culture of the time. Let's use research, and let's use the wisest studies of theology. We have the possibility of not repeating the errors of the past. I'd like to turn now to the study of psychology to find some help for our well-being. The psychopaths segment casts some light on the need to live in synchronization with the realities of our circumstances and emotions. We call this acceptance. Many people today feel like life is sort of like a fight. They battle thoughts that aren't healthy, behaviors that bring trouble, and even other people. I shouldn't feel so anxious, some might say, or he doesn't treat me like he should. But is this way of fighting and conflict with reality the best way to live? Many counselors today urge clients to instead live with acceptance. So, what does that mean, and why is it good? Think of it this way. Acceptance basically means to live according to reality. For instance, when I accept a gift, then I receive the item as a fact and I make it part of my life. When I accept the charges for a purchase it means that I confirm the reality of that monetary exchange. When I accept responsibilities for a decision, then I commit myself to live in the reality of those consequences. A major school of modern psychological therapy is called acceptance and commitment therapy. Acceptance here is the willingness to take and hold what life offers without needless defense, even if this involves difficult or negative feelings. Acceptance does not seek to escape, deny, or avoid the feelings, but instead acknowledges and embraces them as they are. For instance, when a loved one dies, we should accept the sadness and mixed feelings that last for weeks or months without condemning our reaction as being weak and something we should get over. Because you are a genuine human being, you will be provoked to anger at times. You'll be scared out of your wits, You'll lust after bodily gratification, or you'll be empty after a loss. Acceptance says it's vital to enter into this reality of these emotions for yourself without judgment or condemnation, and yet realize it's not the totality of your identity. For instance, we might think, I am terrified, and that isn't how a real man should feel. But with acceptance... We should think, I have a feeling of fear right now. Is that what I want? Is it best for me right now? With this change in our thought patterns, we separate our greater self from the feelings that are temporary. We recognize that the emotions come and go, and that we can acknowledge them without being absorbed by them. This change in thought brings us to another phase of acceptance. It's important for us to disconnect our interpretation from our actions. When interpretation is closely tied to actions, psychologists call this fusion, meaning that we entangle what we're thinking with what we're doing. We often tie our behaviors and thought patterns together in unreasonable ways. For example, when Zeke ran a red light and got a ticket, he blamed Ursula. You were telling me that stupid story about your mother, and I couldn't concentrate. Zeke had fused his behavior of poor driving with his blame-fixing on Ursula. How much better it would have been if he would have recognized how irrational that is. Ursula's conversation didn't make him run the red light. When we do this, we are defusing, separating our thoughts about events from our behavior so that we can ask Act according to our best values. Zeke and Ursula could have avoided the argument and hurt feelings if Zeke would have paused to take responsibility for his inattention and poor driving, not blaming her, but accepting the responsibility for his feelings and actions. We can choose how we will interpret and respond to each feeling. When you feel sad, you can choose to retreat into bed, or go out for a meditative stroll. When you're angry, you can choose in a moment whether to scream at your spouse or to take a deep breath and consider your words. Accepting the power of the emotion and channeling the energy for constructive ends is like using the mighty power of what seems to be a crashing wave thundering towards the beach and instead surfing on it to glide to the beach with a smile. Acceptance. It is the reality of living according to reality. It is to accept what we're feeling without judgment or condemnation and then to act according to our best values. We can make acceptance work for us by owning our feelings without judgment and separating our thinking from our actions. Each of these opens new possibilities of living in harmony with our values and goals. Rather than being a prisoner of our innate reactions to life events, friends and fellow explorers, let me take a moment in this episode today to remind you that there is a Kindle ebook which contains the episodes from 2020 of this Tracks for the Journey podcast. I put together these 16 essays so that you could have a comprehensive look at all the subjects that were covered in 2020. These insights cover things like Love, God, and You, Dare to Diary, Acceptance in the Serenity Prayer, The Matter of Black Lives, Your Bible and Your Health, Lesson the Stressin', that was one of the most popular episodes, and a special COVID message and essay. All of that is available on the Amazon Kindle Store, and you can download it for a very inexpensive price and enjoy reading through the essays that we covered in 2020. You can also find it by going to my website, tracksforthejourney.com, And there you can find a link to automatically check into Amazon and get your copy. I hope you'll enjoy it, because some of these subjects are still very much alive today. Our final segment on this audio magazine is in the Waypoints section where I bring attention to media that promotes well-being. Let's talk about a book that I believe will help your faith adapt and adjust to changing times. Your spiritual beliefs are especially important for your well-being. They're a foundation for your values, relationships, and hopes. Brian McLaren, writing in his book Faith After Doubt, shares some important qualities to consider when building a belief system for today's world. Certitude seems to be a prized possession today, doesn't it? All around us are zealous voices, proclaiming their answer, discovery, faith, or political view is without doubt the best and only way to live. And the flip side is also true. If you don't agree with those ideas that are being presented, you're doomed or evil or failure. It's time to take a stand now, we're told, or America will be swept away, our family destroyed, and our emotions wrecked. Even our language has the message in the words for us as we speak to other persons, as we say in response to a question, Absolutely, that's right. We need to say, "woe" to such a demand for certainty. Absolutes really are rarely possible in human life. For instance, we can define pi, the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter, as the number 3.14. But the absolute answer to that has been calculated to 3.14 and 22 trillion more digits that never repeat. We can never be absolutely absolute about the value of pi. And life is full of uncertainties more relevant than this. And isn't it true that the loudest proclamations seem to have the weakest support of reason or ethical principles? That may be especially true about religion. So Brian McLaren has this great book entitled Faith After Doubt. In his work, he opens our eyes to the value of doubt and the lack of certainty. Sharing from his his own faith journey, he writes, I came to realize that doubt was a companion and she wasn't going away. She had some things to teach me. Since I couldn't shut her up or drive her away, I might as well learn from her." Quote. I think a beginning point for our well-being is the recognition that we have a limited capacity to understand the unlimited one. Because we are tiny creatures in an incomprehensible universe— any word we say about the divine is de facto inadequate. Even a brief survey of Christian history reveals the amazing diversity of theology held at various times, some of which has been tragically reinforced with violence. The reality is that much of what is accepted today as standard Christian teaching is very different than what was believed a few centuries ago. Pick up a book on Christian history, and within a few pages, your mind will be spinning with the incredible diversity of belief and practice across the centuries. It is the height of hubris to say that I, or my church, is the ultimate and only version of spiritual truth. What we hope today is an improvement in clarity, of course, as scholars evolve more profound understandings and believers go deeper into the very heart of God and His work. But I think we must admit that no human will ever fathom the depths of God. I like what McLaren says of his own faith journey. He says, quote, "I became more comfortable with God being a mystery, a mystery too holy for words." End quote. It is here that the quest for faith becomes an exciting exploration, really, not a mere recitation of doctrines from ages past. And we should be grateful that God has chosen to unveil much truth in the prophets of humanity. The life and teaching of Jesus is the capstone, of course. As the Johannine community wrote, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's John one eighteen. However, To assert that my understanding of this revelation is the sum of all knowledge is to raise my truth to the level of idolatry. McLaren really brings insight. When he shows that doubt, questions, and a commitment to growth are vital for our spiritual life, he asserts, only doubt can save the world. How does he mean that? Doubt can be a doorway to new insights and the catalyst for real growth. In a sense, this lack of certainty will allow us to move beyond the false binaries which seek to control the world and our fears. We can move beyond beliefs about certain theological assertions to a faith that is literally beyond belief, embracing all the world instead with a love that is active for all people. McLaren writes again, Jesus doesn't teach a set of beliefs to be memorized and recited. Instead, he teaches a way of life that culminates in a call to revolutionary love." Quote. The bottom line for the well-being of believers today is a spirit of humility about our declaration of faith and practice. Unless we hold beliefs with love for others, they are worthless. Again, quoting McLaren as he studied and wrestled with his faith, It became clear to me one message was emerging in the Bible, as clear as it was revolutionary. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. I think you'll enjoy Faith After Doubt by Brian McLaren. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, and I hope that you can enjoy it as much as I am. Thank you for taking a few minutes to listen to this episode of Tracks for the Journey. If you like what you've heard, share a rating with your podcast provider and send a link to your friends. I invite you personally to go to the tracksforthejourney.com to find more resources for your faith journey. You can also join the community on Facebook or email me care of trackspodcast at outlook.com. Tracks for the Journey is produced at the Bright Star Studio and hosted by buzzsprout.com. All rights reserved. Music is provided through Epidemic Music. Thanks for joining me, and may your journey be to well-being.